Are you still trying to reinvent the wheel? Tens of thousands of professionals have attempted to solve the same challenges you're dealing with right now. Some of them failed, some of them succeeded. But very few of them succeeded and captured their proven approach to share it with the world. Mike Kunkel is one of these very few. He has been an enabler for over 30 years and has captured his proven approach in an extremely successful framework called the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. Mike and I have now translated the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement framework into a learning experience that helps a new generation of enablement teams fast-track their journey to sales enablement mastery. Our combination of group coaching sessions, actionable video lessons, materials, resources, networking opportunities and templates makes mastering sales enablement best practices faster and easier than it has ever been before. So if you want to stop reinventing the wheel, maximize business impact and fast-track your career, consider joining a growing community of enablers at the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement Learning Experience. To learn more, visit goffwd.com slash blocks. That's g-o-f-f-w-d.com slash b-l-o-c-k-s. She was doing all the right things. The onboarding program was done and she was out there. She was killing it. She was set to achieve her targets and meet all the defined ramp criteria that came with her onboarding. But you know what? She was doing such a good job that the competitors came knocking on her LinkedIn door and they opened the checkbook. And then, of course, Anna is out the door. So successful onboarding, I think, is not just about making the ramp criteria, which many of us think it is. It's about really setting someone up for long-term success. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. The old saying, time is money, couldn't be more true for ramping up new sales hires as quickly and effectively as possible. That's why sales onboarding is always a hot topic in enablement. In this week's episode, I'm joined by two experts who have designed high-performing onboarding programs in the past. They represent the two ends of the spectrum of onboarding programs, the large-scale data-driven onboarding approach required in global enterprises and the fast-moving agile approach required in the startup world. Please welcome IBM's sales enablement leader for Australia, Southeast Asia, New Zealand, and Korea, Georgia Watson, and Dandy's head of enablement, Devin McDermott. Georgia and Devin, welcome to the State of Sales Enablement. Great to have you. We had two guests on the show before in a conversation with the Enablement Squad, but this is the first time we actually combine two different perspectives from two different industries around the topic. So I'm very excited to have you on the show today. For those few people that might not be familiar with your names, please introduce yourselves. Why don't we start with you, Georgia? Sure. Thanks, Felix. And great to be here. Really excited to have this discussion. I've been working in predominantly the IT industry and some time in the education industry around the globe, helping individuals, organizations transform skills and culture and really create positive impact for them clients as well as for themselves. And you guys both know this already, but I'm really passionate about sales enablement as well as innovation and inclusion and this power of connection and collective knowledge. In terms of what I do now, recently I had a very 
deja vu moment. I walk through the shining glass doors of IBM Australia's South Bank office as a new joiner, again, 17 years after I first did it as a fresh face graduate joining IBM. So I'm back working for IBM based out of Australia, and I'm currently leading sales enablement for a region we call ASEAN ZK. Awesome. Well, exciting times. Back to Australia. I'm sure a lot has changed since you last lived here, but it's great to have you back on, on our shores. Devin, give us a bit of background around what you've done over the years and what your role is now, because you recently started a new job as well, right? I did. It's super exciting. And I'm also just so thrilled to be here to, to chat about sales onboarding. My background is, is a little bit different than other enablers. I got my start in account management, then into training and L&D and found my way into enablement via sales productivity but have been so lucky to work at companies like Salesforce, Sprinkler, Code3, Sailthrough, and then I recently left Persado. But in many of those roles, I had the opportunity to build out enablement programs from the ground up, which in doing that I found was my sweet spot. I absolutely love the startup world and figuring things out from day one. But over the past six weeks, I've embarked on a new adventure as the head of revenue enablement at a company called Dandy, which is a dental tech company, which is a totally new industry for me. And it's been super exciting learning and, and understanding everything that there is to know about dental tech. And at Dandy, I'm building out that function from the ground up. Really looking forward to doing some amazing things there. Awesome. Dental tech, that's a new one. So <laughs> really keen to learn more about that space. Yes. I want to cut straight to the chase. What makes a great onboarding program? What do all the great onboarding programs that you guys have come across in your careers have in common? Well, Felix, I think there are so many different elements to this. I wanted to start, though, by actually just telling you a quick story. So this is the story of, we'll call her Anna. She's a seller. She was hired in. She was a perfect fit for her role and exactly what the company needed. She completed her structured onboarding training around selling skills, tools, resources. She had coaching and she was doing all the right things. The onboarding program was done and she was out there. She was killing it. She was set to achieve her targets and meet all the defined ramp criteria that came with her onboarding. But you know what? She was doing such a good job that the competitors came knocking on her LinkedIn door and they opened the checkbook. And then, of course, Anna is out the door. So successful onboarding, I think, is not just about making the ramp criteria, which many of us think it is. It's about really setting someone up for long-term success. And in addition to that skill, sales, product, knowledge, tools, and resources, there are three things that I think are included in a really compelling enablement program. It needs to include how to navigate and build lasting connections with others. Yes, it's even more important now, too, in our virtual world. It has to look at culture, the company culture and the attitudes. And the third thing, they have to be totally brought in on the company vision and understand what it means for them in terms of the impact that they can make in the role as well as personal growth opportunities. And I think if they're not in our current climate, they will go as soon as that other checkbook is opened. So a great onboarding program to me takes into account these kind of things that can be fully addressed in a virtual environment, as well as some things that maybe we'll consider to be a bit more basic. That's really interesting. So it's not all about the transactional 
onboarding, so to speak, of just making the seller produce suddenly, but it's also about the person, so to speak, and onboarding the person to the company and really making sure that the person really perceives the new company as a new home for their career. Yeah, very much. And I think sometimes what we do as enablers, we kind of make this assumption that, oh, HR has that piece, particularly, you know, maybe not in startup land, but if you're in a big multinational like I am, we sort of think, okay, HR will cover that cultural and the first bits. I'm going to look at the skills that are needed to generate revenue. But I think we need to be working closely with HR to make sure that that is also covered. And then whatever we are building that comes after perhaps an initial HR kind of more focused onboarding, that we're building that in as messages that continually come up in the curriculum that we're creating as well. So what about you, Devin? From your point of view, what makes a great onboarding program? Yeah. And a quick note on that, HR covering culture is important, but there's those microcultures on the individual teams that exist that we have to make sure we're including in our programs and sustaining like what does that mean over time? That culture is evolving and it's not just about the organization. It's those moments on your broader team and your subgroups that are really, really valuable. But to kind of piggyback off of that, there's definitely a number of things that make an incredible onboarding program. And I think the first thing is that it shouldn't be approached as a one-off initiative. It needs to be thought of as a sustained strategic program that puts our reps first, that's committed to hiring the right people with the right skills and experience to help us drive results. So Onboarding shouldn't be approached, as we said, as that moment. It should be designed as sustained long-term programming that supports new reps at key moments during their first 90 days and well beyond that, right? With an emphasis on building efficient but meaningful velocity to productivity and role. And it also finds that right balance, as, as Georgia said, between cultural onboarding, on-the-job execution, strategy, product, everything that somebody needs holistically to be an effective team member in your organization. But to get a little bit tactical, it should also layer in those very clear 30, 60, 90 milestones, regular feedback and coaching with the ultimate goal of segueing folks very smoothly into everboarding after that initial 90 days. So it stops being a moment and it just becomes the next phase in your employee development cycle and a successful onboarding program. And I think this may be more prevalent in the startup world. But it's not about the enablement team. It's not about what the enablement team wants. It's about the teams that we're supporting. And it really ensures that we're cultivating opportunities to engage in role without prematurely pushing folks into situations that they might not be ready for. So part of that is setting expectations and timing very clearly up front, making sure that leadership, sales leadership and leadership across your business are involved to support those touch points throughout the process that managers are plugged in and participating. Onboarding isn't something that enablement hands off to managers after we're done, you know, in air quotes. Managers need to be part of it, participating at a regular cadence, having a buttoned up mentor program to bring in more support and targeted coaching for new folks is key. And something that I definitely want to dig into a little bit more throughout our conversation is getting hiring right. Getting hiring right is a game changer. It saves time, money. It should expedite the onboarding process. And we can be confident that our new hires have the right skills to be successful. And I think we can all agree that identifying and hiring the right profile for your business allows you to build the right strategy that can be easily modified to meet specific rep needs, address gaps, and really just drive incredible success. And getting that formula right, you can reduce time to productivity exponentially. So based on what you guys just mentioned, there can be a whole lot of things included in any onboarding program. And 
because of that, there can be a danger of onboarding programs blowing out and a lot of information being thrown at sales reps, right? Product training is a recurring offender where a one-hour product presentation goes into every single detail of the features and functions of the platform if you're in software sales anyway, but it goes into all the different details and sales reps might be overwhelmed. So you really have to find that balance between the need-to-know content that's really crucial at that very point in time of the onboarding program and the things that might go beyond that scope that you might save for later or include as a just-in-time resource throughout the first year of the employee's journey. So how do you propose companies and enablers can strike a balance between that mandatory and not necessarily mandatory content? Why don't we start with you, Devin? Yeah, I have sort of a non-answer, but with the right company strategy, with a clear sales process, clear methodology, and an understanding of how to execute on an excellent sales cycle, we can make sure that we're giving reps the right information they need at the right moment in time throughout their first 90 days, their first six months, and their first 12 months. So seeding out product training at the right time so that they have a, a general understanding of what it is we sell, what the value prop is, key differentiators, and some of those watch outs, don't ever say this about our product, always say that, and giving them the right tools as well, like talk tracks and cheat sheets to kind of fake it till you make it on some of the product expertise while we focus really on strategic execution and best practices. And then things like tech tools. I think companies also double down on tech tools and getting really into the weeds on how to do all of the things perfectly in those first 30 days. It's understanding what is the base level knowledge people need just to get off the ground running. And then when they're getting closer to that first discovery call, that first negotiation, what do we seed out to them from a tech perspective, from a knowledge perspective, and from a product perspective? I think you were saying it earlier, Felix, that just-in-time learning so that we're reinforcing core concepts, we're driving the right behaviors, but we're not overwhelming, which companies want to do because they want to get onboarding done. They want to do it fast. And so that tends to be a problem. But I think, again, having the right strategy processes and programs in place to seed out the right knowledge at the right time, reinforce when appropriate, and support via just-in-time learning is the key to not get caught in the product trap. I really love this, Devin, what you've just said for a couple of reasons is, you know, we know now more than ever, we have to get people resources when they need them. So front loading isn't always a great approach. There's only so much somebody's brain can take. And I love this idea, this continual kind of learning. It's not just 30, 60, 90 days. This goes on for a year and depending on the rep and their experience and their turf and what they need to know to be able to actually perform in their role is very different. The kind of things that we need to give them. From my point of view, what you said, Devin, about orchestrating those sort of info packages that you throw the reps way, it comes down to general communication from a sales enablement point of view and yeah. sales enablement's responsibility to control the information load to reps, because I think that's something that reps, not only new reps, but reps in general struggle with if there's no clear structure on communication and if there's no filtering from sales enablement is that there's a lot of departments that can support sales, but there's also a lot of departments that can overload sales with information. And I think yeah. <laughs> that, again, should feed into the general communication strategy of sales enablement, which obviously includes onboarding as well. Yeah. And knowing you're not going to make product experts overnight, especially in complex industries. And that's the biggest thing is, well, we gave them an hour long training and they took a quiz. How come they can't talk about it like an expert? Well, of course they can. No human being can, especially when they're tasked with learning a million other things about your business and your industry. So it's also setting those right expectations internally with the product team or other cross-functional stakeholders of 
What can our team members absorb and how do we make sure we're building the right content for them to support the exact level of information they need to be dangerous and build those skills over time? Something that I also have come to realize over the years is that the ideal emotional state for learning is that you really feel like you're in a safe environment and you yes. don't have any distracting thoughts, right? And I think it's also important to note that a sales rep starting a new role, being in a completely new environment, feeling like everybody's judging them, meeting new people. <laughs> this is, when you look at it on a meta level, not necessarily an ideal emotional state to be learning, right? And I think that also needs to be respected and considered and I think that's, I guess, where coaching comes into play, where you actually create those safe spaces and allow for that personalization and that safe space for learning. Yeah. The reptilian brain kicks in and everybody gets scared and terrified. That's right. That's right. So, Devin, I'm really keen to quiz you on the startup world because that's where you're home. So you've previously worked for a really fast-growing startup for the last two or so years. And you've recently joined another really fast-growing startup. <laughs> yes. Startups oftentimes need to be agile in the way they adjust to market conditions, in the way they figure things out really quickly as they scale and as they hire lots of new sales reps. How do you go about actually designing that onboarding experience and maintaining agility and actually creating something that improves over time? Yeah, and I'm going to take us back because some of the challenges that startups face are part of the challenge in creating a meaningful onboarding program. So there are, are so many startups that are still figuring the basics out, like finding their product market fit, like navigating the competitive space, figuring out the right approach to how to do just about everything. And despite this, sales teams are usually the first function to be built out, even before some of that very foundational process and execution flows are defined. And that's because we got to get the money train chugging along, right? So we need to hire the reps. But for better or worse, this inevitably leads to a serious point of tension where you have a startup that needs sales onboarding, but you don't have the data necessary to develop something that's strategic or fully baked. So if a company is moving fast during those early stages, they might not take the time or have really have the data to map out four competencies or an ideal rep profile. And some don't even have a documented sales process to speak of, let alone like methodologies or workflows or playbooks. So there is a way to create momentum, impact, and consistency, even in an organization that's trying to floor it or put the pedal to the metal and go at full speed. And the first thing for enablement to do is to partner with HR early on. Get access to the seller profile. Who are these people that we're bringing into the organization? Understand what those basic core competencies are. And even if they're not fully baked, that's okay. Enablement can step in and help to develop those, help to build those out to create momentum, but also to create more effective programming. And also enablement can partner with sales leadership or RevOps if those functions exist to map a starter sales process, again, to start to create some sort of consistency and order in how we execute, even in an environment that can still feel very chaotic. So what we need to do once we get our selling team on board is try to support them in the best way possible, knowing that it's not perfect. But as we talked about earlier, that care and nurturing and seeding of our sales reps is so important from day one, even if we don't have the perfect program in place, because it sets the stage from that organization and culture perspective where we can say, we care about you, we're focused on you, bear with us, we're going to support you in any way we can. But beyond all of that, 
it comes down to stakeholder management. And Felix, you and I have spoken a lot about in the past and keeping your finger on the pulse of what our reps need and want. So leveraging data in the moment via your programs, using surveys, performance output where you can. And we're going to talk a little bit about challenges there in a second and try to understand at every core moment what's working, what's not, and identify those opportunities for optimizing our approach or pivoting where necessary in real time. So one other thing, actually two other things, but the main thing I want to talk about, because this can kind of make or break the success of your onboarding program in a startup, is giving into pressure from leadership. And I'm talking about leadership who believes that onboarding is going to delay momentum. They're hiring rock stars. They got to put them into the field. They can't wait any longer. Two weeks is it. And we know that's not going to do anything for our business, right? And I call this, you know, I like to name things. I call this the boot camp trap, meaning there is always one leader who insists that a one to two week boot camp is all we need because that's what they did in the past and it works. Why would we do anything else? And so we know as enablers that we can't expect mastery or anything even remotely close to that in two weeks. And so when I get this comment, because I always do, no matter which organization I'm in, I give them a little speech and I tell them what we need to do to get things back on track. Usually it works, but speed within a startup organization is always the biggest challenge. So we have to move faster. We can't wait. We don't have time. And working in a startup, which I've done quite a bit in my career, you get used to hearing certain phrases at least once a day. And so it's, we need to move faster. Can we do this in less time? Hurry, hurry, hurry. You're taking too long. And if I can be very honest for a moment, I think this is a safe space. That faster, faster, faster rocket ship, we have to go isn't going to solve any of our problems because inevitably it leads to us having to do things a second time. And let's face it, if you have time to get it right the second time, then you have no excuse to rush it the first time. Let's take a moment to do it right. So I'm done ranting and raving for a moment. I do want to acknowledge before everybody thinks I hate boot camps that two-week boot camps are fantastic, especially for startup companies as part of a larger sustained program. So oftentimes we're still figuring out the specifics of what that 30-day, 90-day, six-month program could look like, and the boot camp gets us off the ground. But it has to evolve as quickly as our business and needs to be designed and iterated on to account for things that are changing fast, product updates, process updates, business refinements, go-to-market changes. And so a boot camp is an integral and an incredible part of a more robust onboarding strategy as our business evolves. But a solid hiring plan and strategic bootcamp focused on productivity and role are really going to be the things that make this work and allow us to create that momentum. And we talked about this briefly, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again, but we need to make sure we're just not falling into that product knowledge dump gap and saying, we trained them for two weeks on the product, they're geniuses. And so very quickly, I'd love to share some quick and dirty approaches to standing up bootcamp in the midst of chaos and an organization going through major change. And so we can do that. We can build a meaningful boot camp while we're laying the foundation for something that's more robust, that can evolve alongside all of those things we just talked about. Strategy, tech stack, rep profile. And the best part is we can still move fast and create momentum while we're taking a step back to be thoughtful and methodical in how we plan. So spending time planning upfront, laying that scalable foundation, and then rolling content out as it's ready is going to let us tackle some of that low-hanging fruit and work out a plan that's going to get us where we think we need to be. And so when I built my first ever 30-day onboarding program, I was a team of one, and I started with one certification and a bunch of really crappy, less than mediocre recorded webinars. 
But I knew where we were going because I built my plan and I knew we were going to add in four to six more certifications, moments of purposeful practice, role-playing, shadowing, gong call reviews, all of the things that I knew we wanted to do, but I knew we were at least six months away from that. So we started with what we had. I kept placeholders for what we wanted to build. We recorded live sessions to fill the gaps, set up those informal stopgap role plays, things of that nature. And at the same time, we were focusing on building the machine. We were procuring and leveraging the right technology. We were making better use of those in-person sessions, creating cleaner, tighter, better content, high quality asynchronous learning experiences, which we deployed over time. We had our rollout plan. We introduced all of those new things to the existing team members in field as well, because we were upskilling our field, we were introducing things to onboarding, but we made sure that we were including those essential elements for that sustained learning beyond the 90 days. Peer coaching, manager involvement, but really ensuring that whatever we were doing, we were building a curriculum that was building skills over time, that was heading where we needed to go, even though we weren't ready to get there. And that, I think you said this word before, Felix, that was agile enough to shift and change with our business. So a few takeaways is you can lay a scalable foundation by focusing on your existing resources, tackling the low-hanging fruit while you take the meaningful time you need to plan for strategic high-quality programming in future stages of rollout. And most importantly, as your rep profile changes in real time, as your process changes in real time, visit your program often, more often than you think in a startup. Source feedback from the field, from leadership, define and track and reassess your program benchmarks because those are going to change as you go and make sure that you are constantly evolving everything you do because your business is changing daily. And so it is your program. Yeah. Sounds like a wild ride, what you're describing there. <laughs> I love what you're saying about just asking the new refs joining for understanding and you're figuring things out along the way. I think mm -hmm. that was my experience for the first time changing from a corporate role into a startup role yeah. is that mindset shift and that understanding that you need to have that things will be figured out along the way. I guess that's probably something that a lot of reps doing that step from enterprise to startup will be struggling with. But mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting what you describe around the continuous improvement. I think also what you're saying about taking a step back and taking a bit more time in preparing things in order to not having to go back and repeat things. Yes. I guess it's counterintuitive in a way, but my experience is also that it's worthwhile. Yeah, there's no point in rushing it. No, you'll still get rushed, but there's no point in rushing it. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So one thing that I found really interesting about what you were saying was the limited amount of data sources, which I guess would be a stark contrast from an enterprise environment, like the one that you're dealing with, Georgia. Do you have a lot of data sources available that can inform onboarding programs? Or is it also a question of you creating your own data sources and leveraging those? Yeah, I think we're very much at the opposite end of the spectrum. The new Devon in startup world, there is a lot of existing materials, assets, approaches, programs that have been done before and evolved and changed over time. In terms of data, we have a lot of that too. And I think the trick is to find out which are the really key pieces of data as it is in basically anything in sales enablement. What are the really key pieces to measure and what does that really mean in terms of seller effectiveness when they complete the onboarding? So, for example, we have quite structured programs at IBM and everybody loves a good NPS once you've just finished, you know, a long running onboarding program. But if you haven't actually, you're measuring that based on the quality of that training before it's actually tried and tested in the market when the reps are out there in the field trying to do their thing. So I think it's, we need to just be super selective about which data we want to use. 
it's an ongoing process, right? Programs are continually evolving based on the data that's coming in, as well as sometimes the informal feedback as well. Data is great. It allows us to make sure that we're really focusing on the key right things. But every now and then a comment, you know, someone might say, hey, have you thought about this? And it can be something that can really change an experience for some of the people involved in the programs. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, the old NPS score. I guess in the context of onboarding, the question might as well be how engaging was the presenter and the trainer <laughs> that you had, right, versus how effective was it actually? Yeah. I think it's boiling down a very complex experience into one number, which is obviously not very nuanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you guys actually go about collecting qualitative feedback on your onboarding programs? Is it the survey? Do you have conversations with the sales reps? How are you proactive about that? We're really big on surveys at IBM. I think we're always wanting to measure and get feedback. So for many of the different elements that make up onboarding, you know, there's surveys that go out to capture that feedback, you know, beyond just NPS as well. And as time goes on, you know, as enablers, we always look at, okay, so what does that mean longer term? How is that person actually going now in terms of the pipeline that they're creating, in terms of their ability to meet their targets longer term? And the thing is, you know, we all know different roles, different territories, you don't always have the same outcome. If you come in as a new seller, even if you're the best seller going, you come into a patch where there has been no action and you're starting from scratch and it's long sales cycles. No matter how good you are, you're going to be struggling to have anything to show at three months. So I think we have to be super realistic as well when we are digging into the metrics about what sellers can actually achieve and what is a reflection on the onboarding experience and what is shared with them versus what's going on in the market and the bigger macro picture. And you mentioned uh, long sell cycles. How would you in that scenario define the milestones? Because the actual reflection of how effective a rep might be ramping might be months down the track, and it's really hard to tell what the progress is. How do you go about that sort of situation? Yeah, my personal view is you would have to continually measure and monitor over like an extended period of time as well. When does the onboarding start and end? Felix, earlier you mentioned a year. Devin, you talked about everboarding. This is just it. It's not 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. It kind of goes beyond that. But at one point it becomes a bit tricky. You know, when is this the seller doing amazing stuff for themselves and what has been influenced by their actual onboarding experience? Mm, that's right. That's right. So Georgia, considering the sort of scale that you're dealing with in your enterprise roles at IBM and the scale you need to achieve with an onboarding program while accommodating for the individual, how do you strike that balance between accommodating for personal learning preferences, cultural differences, while actually achieving that scale that is needed to onboard a large workforce? Oh, isn't this just the eternal question? <laughs> Personalization versus scale. I think in every learning conversation, it comes up. <laughs> well, I was hoping we figure it out in this conversation. Solve it today. Yeah. <laughs> Once and for all. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? I think there's many different approaches. First, I want to tell you a little bit about an experience I had working in the education industry with a group called RMIT Activator. So they're a little bit more your style, Devin. They're a small, more startup style organization within a much bigger university. And they're focused on creating new ventures and building innovation and entrepreneurial expertise. And the team have a truly beautiful, human, personalized onboarding experience. You know, all the little extra bits that just give you all the warm fuzzies, as well as some of the basics. In addition, there's even, you know, really structured initial meetings that are set up. 
There's highly role-specific personalized training that is shared with you. So that's all really great, but this is a small team. So of course, doing that high level of customization at a large scale is much, much harder. So I had two tips for people around this. First, I think when you are designing your onboarding program, you need to be really clear on what actually needs to be personalized and what doesn't. So for example, we want to account for things like cultural differences, learning preferences, different job roles, different experience levels within those roles. Considering those things versus what really is a one-size-fits-all. So things like baseline sales skills, product knowledge, competitive insights, and then the other piece that sometimes we say is HR, culture, values, and that what we do, they're the things that can be much more static across your program. So when we think about IBM, we really do have a truly global onboarding program. There's no shortage of data. There's no shortage of resource. There's no shortage of insights that can be used. So it's quite different from your experience, Devin. What is really similar, though, from what you've just shared is that it is this continual iterative process. It's always evolving based on the feedback, based on the data that's coming in. So that was my first tip. My second tip was about to really think about how you slice and dice that online, self-paced, on-demand learning, or potentially even how you can even empower your new joiners to actually select what is most relevant to them based on their current skills. So whether you have an LMS, an LMX, or you're using some kind of social learning platform, we really need to make sure all our great content is there. We're lucky at IBM. We don't have an issue with the volume of content. Our quality is identifying what is the best fit for that seller. But if we can empower individuals to structure that in a way that suits them, I think it's really beneficial. The other kind of piece that I think is important in terms of cultural nuances. So when we think about a large kind of structured onboarding program, there are ways that we can account for these kind of nuances and we can personalize at scale. So for example, things like having local speakers and local facilitators. Mm making the best of any role play scenarios, like make those role plays in that really relevant local context, particularly even with clients that that individual may be working for. And I think there's huge opportunity also where you maximize that peer-to-peer learning and cohort-based learning to really address those kind of cultural nuances. And you can do that at scale, right? You might have the same program running globally, but if you slot these kind of pieces in and out based on country, based on languages, it has a huge difference in the impact of the program. So you worked in the Middle East for a long time, which is obviously a very different culture compared to Australia. What are some of those cultural nuances that you mentioned that could be reflected in a role play, for example, that might play out? Like, what's an example of that? So in my time working in Africa, Middle East and Australia, there's some things that have seemed so different between the countries. Australians are notoriously very direct and very blunt. <laughs> In the Middle East, it's very different. Everyone is quite considered and much more sort of diplomatic in their approaches. So the way that you are actually running the role play, having an Aussie give feedback to somebody who's just starting out in the Middle East could even be a bit jarring for somebody, you know, particularly they're not feeling comfortable. We talked about having this safe learning environment and often having people from the same culture and being able to speak in your native dialect just brings a different level of comfort. Felix, I know you speak a couple of languages. I certainly don't. 
but I know so many sellers working in global organizations are continually going through this process of translating and thinking about, okay, what's that in English? So you don't want that effort to be going there. You want them to be focused on what the actual activity is and learn the most from it that they can. Got it. Well, if you think Australians are blunt, you should come to Germany one time. <laughs> I was going to say, I did a bit of a fair bit of sales training in Australia, and I have definitely been on the receiving end of some of that blunt feedback. So definitely kept me honest, which I appreciate. <laughs> Georgia, I have a question for you. So my experience lies mostly in the startup space from an enablement program development perspective and function perspective. What advice would you give an enabler like me who may eventually move into a larger company where I'm tasked with scoping out these much more robust programs with access to all of these resources? Are there any tips you would give somebody who's moving out of the startup space into a more well-built out organization? I think whatever the scale of the organization is, it comes back to the basics. What are you trying to achieve? For who? What is the timeline? How can you make it happen? And how can you meet whatever those learning objectives or targets are in the best way that is possible. I think a challenge that we face a lot at IBM, and I know other big organizations have this too, is because there is sometimes so much content and existing material out there, how do you find the very best right. to make sure that is what you're highlighting to your sellers? A common point of feedback that we get is our content management system is huge. But if you say to a seller, hey, just go and check it out on Seismic, they could be in there for days. There's so much stuff. So how do you find the stuff that really helps you achieve what it is that you're trying to do? So it comes back to the real, what is the priority? What is the strategy? And how can you align? Awesome. That's true. I think in onboarding and probably just like in any other area in sales enablement in the enterprise space is oftentimes about reducing complexity rather than putting new structures in place. So that certainly sounds familiar. So... We spoke about personalization, we've spoke about social learning, which has been on the radar of the enablement community for quite a while now and pretty much become part of the standard approach. Are there any innovative approaches to onboarding that you've come across or new ways of thinking about onboarding that you can share? I'll like talk through something. I don't think it's necessarily game changing, but it's interesting. And I know you said that everybody's at a different maturity level. So something that I think is really interesting is just all of the new technology that exists in the enablement space. And my biggest frustration with all of this new tech is that I can't pilot all of it. Like reading about it online is great, but I would love to be able to just take a month and pilot all of the new onboarding tech, enablement tech that helps to streamline the enablement experience, but more importantly, the rep or customer facing team experience, because there's just so much out there. But I do love to use technology in my enablement efforts, in my onboarding and continuing education efforts. MindTickle is actually doing some really awesome things from a cutting edge tech perspective, bringing in new functionality to their platform. But I have to go back to Gong as being something that, A, it's a technology that is innovating like crazy and bringing in so much data directly into the platform. But from an onboarding perspective, it allows me to place real world experiences in front of my brand new team members in a safe environment. A new hire can navigate an entire customer journey from first call to onboarding to renewal. They can listen to real customer objections. They can hear challenges. They can hear pitches being delivered in good ways and bad ways. And so it provides them an instant insight into our business, which can help dramatically to onboard that person much more quickly. 
rather than saying, here's a, a document of all the objections or go shadow Felix on this call. I don't know if Felix is running good calls. I don't know if it's a, a great call for that new person to be listening to. So we can curate real experiences in executing in role via this technology, which for me has been game changing, especially in a startup where we don't have a lot of resources. We don't have even an incredibly robust tech stack, but thankfully we have call intelligence to leverage. And that has been, again, just such a phenomenal tool from giving our teams exposure to that information, but also being able to say on top of very easily, our folks adopting these new processes that we're throwing at them week over week, our customers responding to it, giving feedback loops to product. It just creates this incredible ecosystem of knowledge and information that didn't exist before. And this might not be an innovation. It's definitely not an innovation in the onboarding world. But for me, in my previous role, bringing in a dedicated onboarding program manager. So in the startup world, you generally have very limited headcount dollars and very limited tech dollars. And so I knew that I wanted that role because we had our onboarding strategy, but I wanted somebody who could be dedicated to that program, not as a trainer, not in a training capacity, but truly as a strategic program developer and executor to nurture that new hire class, to make sure they have everything they need to check in with them daily, weekly, in groups, to share feedback in real time. That's been a game changer for me. Again, like as I think about staffing up a smaller team, that role it's a must-have anytime I'm scoping out a new team. So not an innovation in the space, but perhaps for folks that are getting started, a nice opportunity to bring your program to the next level much more quickly. Awesome. I like what you said about the experience and how you use tech tools to create an experience. Something that I come across more and more often, it's not necessarily being implemented yet as an innovation, but it's more of a way of thinking in an innovative way about the onboarding experience, which is the context of the remote learning experience these days and the disconnected, less personal learning experience. And I see a lot of companies thinking more and more about how we can bring that back to an in-person experience that is not only limited to the classroom, but also brings the sales reps in the environments that the people conducting the onboarding actually operate in. So they get an idea of how their teams work and actually creating a more tangible experience that is not only limited to you sitting at home watching a video, but more of an in-person and more of a physical experience. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that probably came with COVID. First, you had to be innovative by moving everything online. Now it's almost innovative to move it back a bit and dial it back and create those experiences that might leave a greater impression on the sales reps than just watching a video. Yeah. And this wasn't my idea, but I had an amazing team at Persado who introduced virtual reality as an option while we were kind of in the midst of COVID as a way to walk into our New York office, see people, get a taste of what was happening in the Persado world, which was so cool. And my first response is, we can't afford Oculus headsets for everybody. And they're like, no, there's another way. And so thinking about ways to bring that in-person warm and fuzzy experience to your teams via a virtual reality tech tool, which I need to learn more about or something to that effect. So really cool stuff happening. Wow. Yeah. Onboarding in the metaverse. That's a new one. <laughs> exactly. Mark Zuckerberg conducting the onboarding training. I love it. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> I think even the other like important piece to this is as well. So yes, there is value in getting people face to face, but for more and more of us, getting people together is not going to happen, whether it's budget or whether it's, well, you've been doing it successfully for the last two years keep it virtual. Mm -hmm. So I think there's even like a big opportunity. So when it is still fully virtual onboarding, how do you supplement that? Maybe it is virtual, maybe it is augmented reality, or is it things like 
trying to replicate that water cooler kind of conversation that really helps people in so many different ways, or it can anyway, or maybe it's just a chat about the weather. Just to wrap up, do you have any resources that you can share that people might be able to look into after they've been listening to this episode? Any books, any websites, webinars, reports, anything you found interesting about onboarding that would help people to understand the space better? You know what I wanted to actually highlight it was I was thinking about it in our previous points that we were discussing, but there is so many people tackling this onboarding challenge. And in sales enablement, we're really spoiled. We have societies, we have communities, we have people out there who are all overcoming these same kind of barriers and obstacles that we are trying to overcome also. So I guess a key thing I wanted to call is make sure that you're learning from others who are also doing the same thing. Yeah. And even too, you know, when we think about innovation in onboarding as well, sometimes we can be a bit insular in sales enablement. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to look beyond not just your industry, but beyond sales enablement, what things are being done totally differently elsewhere that perhaps we can just pick the best fits from and apply to our own onboarding experiences. I love it. I love that. Devin, do you have anything? I have a couple. Again, not cutting edge per se, but MindTickle, who I, I know I've been talking about them. I don't actually use their technology, but they have some really cool thought leadership on that ideal rep profile and sales readiness. They've been doing a ton of research and I love following their updates on that front. And again, not cutting edge either, but there's a book that came out many years ago at this point called The Sales Acceleration Formula, which has a great chapter on the sales hiring formula, which I've definitely used in previous roles to just start scoping out some basics for the sales team and using that to fuel my onboarding programs. And of course, Mike Kunkel's Building Blocks of Enablement has some great helpful hands-on sections on how to execute on hiring, manager enablement, and onboarding. Another book that I love going back to what you said, Georgia, that's not about sales enablement, but it's about onboarding in general is called The First 90 Days. And it's all about like the first 90 days for a new manager enroll, what to expect, what to do, how to prepare, as well as for a new individual contributor enroll. And I use that book quite a bit just to get a sense of like, what are some of the challenges my new hires might be thinking and feeling? How can I better support them through programming or through the presence of my team? That book is absolutely phenomenal. I actually read it every time I start a new job. And there's another book called Founding Sales, and it's all about building an entire sales organization for the startup world. And there are sections on rep profiles, tips and tricks for onboarding, but also building sustained sales processes and programs. It's incredible. It's a very dense read, but very well worth it if you are building enablement in the startup space. And then there's just a great report from, I think it's Alego. I think that's how you say it. The State of Sales Onboarding, which just is a terrific report that I referenced not too long ago. And, and of course, our amazing peers in SEC Enablement Squad, various Slack groups and podcasts. And I love to follow CROs, sales thought leaders, and other folks that are doing cool things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. That wraps up the very first panel episode of the State of Sales Enablement. Thank you so much for making it happen. It's been a long time coming. If anybody wants to connect with you online, where can they find you? LinkedIn is best for me. Look me up. I'm uh, on LinkedIn quite frequently. Same here. LinkedIn is where I'm at. I'm not cool enough for social media status, but LinkedIn is, is where you can find me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We'll drop your profile links and all the other resources that we discussed throughout this discussion in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining, guys. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having us. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement... 
let's be clear, we've seen companies lay off a third of their sales force. And in that case, you're cutting deep across all departments, most likely. But by doing that and having that kind of program, I do really believe that it is going to have your organization and your team viewed as a strategic partner and not as easily cut. Considering the recent budget cuts in the enablement space, it is no surprise that in a recent LinkedIn poll, 56% of enablers stated that they plan to increase their ability to create business impact in 2023. I've teamed up with sales enablement legend Mike Kunkel to create a webinar that outlines proven approaches to maximizing enablement's business impact. To watch the seven steps to maximizing enablement's business impact, visit goffwd.com slash impact. That's goffwd.com slash I-M-P-A-C-T.